You're listening to a podcast edition of Closer to Truth. For more information about this series, visit our website, closertotruth.com. I am the same person who attended high school, went off to college, started a family, struggled through careers. The same person until I look in a mirror. Decades roll by, experiences accumulate, memories multiply, good ones, bad ones. Every molecule of my body changes many times over. Yet I sense myself inside altogether the same. I am always me, not just continuity, but unity. But is my unity of self an illusion? How does personal identity persist through time? I'm Robert Lawrence Kuhn, and Closer to Truth is my journey to find out. I persist through time, but how? I may feel happy, sad, energetic, lethargic, whatever. How is it the same I having these feelings? That's the crux of the question. If it seems obvious that I do persist, the more I think about all my changes, physical and mental, the less obvious it becomes how I persist. There are many theories, of course, in two big categories, natural and supernatural. I begin with naturalism, the claim that only physical things are real and only physical causes make sense. I go to Cambridge, England, to meet a philosopher of mind, ethics, and language, Simon Blackburn. Simon, how can we deal with this persistence of person through time? The persistence of a person has often been compared to the persistence of a commonwealth or a club. You could have the same football club. It's got different players, it's got a different <laughs> manager, different ground perhaps. What's, what's the same? Almost nothing but the name. So we might be more like a football club than we are um, <laughs> like a little hard atom which stays the same for centuries at a time. And I think that's right. We're organised animals and animals change and grow and grow old and die. I think what we worry about with ourselves is that we like to think of ourselves as having a hard and fast identity. There's a persistence of memories, persistence of organisation, persistence of personality. It'll change, but there's a speed limit. It changes slowly. And I think that's why there's a problem of personal identity in a way there isn't a problem of, say, bicycle identity. This problem of persons persisting in time is really two separate kinds of issues. On the one hand, it's the question of persistence of time of anything. Yeah. How does anything persist through sure. time? And then what are the, the nature of persons themselves? So now sure. you're combining two philosophical problems yeah. into a new problem. Yeah, exactly. Um, because after all, the persistence of lots of things through time doesn't depend on the persistence of their parts. I mean, a tree's cells might grow and change over time. That's the same tree. So persistence of things through time can survive uh, the non-persistence of their parts. Mm -hmm. And that's a general truth. 
your feeling and my feeling that my mm. sense of self is, mm. is, a, is a harder core would naturally lead to some religious ideas of souls and spirits. And yes, I think it's an illusion, but it's a very, very hard illusion to shift. So you imagine, for example, say somebody able to take two halves of your brain, each of them capable of supporting a functioning human being, putting one half in one body, another half in a different body, and then which one's you? And that seems very puzzling because we don't, we, we can't really wrap our minds around, we can't imagine being two people, and yet, yet at the later time you've got two people. Now some would claim at this point yeah. that this uncertainty is a further fact that cannot be adjudicated by the physical world, therefore there is something beyond the physical to explain the self. Yes, I think that's a mistake, but I think it's a natural mistake. I think that it comes from what we call reifying, making a thing out of the soul or the self. I don't think the self should be thought of in thing terms at all. I think the self is a principle of organization of a body, a living body. And um, if you've got two living bodies which are organized, you've got two people. If there's descendants of one person, well, that should be no more puzzling than the, uh, the motorway splitting in two. And you've got two roads. Each of them's a descendant of the previous road. It would be a kind of parenting. The question of how personal identity persists through time seems the conjunction of two separate questions, each fundamental. First, how does anything persist through time? Planets, oceans, countries, cars? Second, what are persons? Is there anything special about personhood? One answer could be that persons are the same living organism, the self a principle of organization. But does this have sufficient explanatory power? It seems too simple, too general. And what of those mystifying split-brain transplants? If my brain were split between two bodies, it'd not be like one road splitting into two roads, because I have an inner sense of unified consciousness, and roads do not. Brain transplant thought experiments are revealing. So I pursue them with the editor of Think Magazine, a philosopher known for clarifying complex problems, Stephen Law. We've got two individuals, let's say, let's call one Jim and the other one John. They are sat down and their brains are removed. <laughs> we take Jim's brain and we stick it in John's body. We take John's brain and we stick it in Jim's body. Let's assume that the brain is what causally underpins your memory, your personality traits and so on. The two individuals wake up. We ask the person in John's body, who are you? They're gonna say Jim, because they've got, you know, Jim's brain. Uh, the person in Jim's body is going to say that they're, they're John. All of their memories have been moved over, as have their personality traits. That's a, that's a scenario we can envisage, and now we test our intuitions. Where did Jim and where did John end up? Now, most people will say Jim's in John's body and John's in Jim's body, and if that's true, then you do not necessarily have to go where you're body goes. What follows is that it's not my body that's me, because that changes anyway, but it's my memories, it's my personality. It's really my inner awareness. 
Yeah, well, the, the idea that it's the, you know, kind of, it's the psychological attributes that are really important. So you don't need the same body. Uh, you go where the memories, say, go. But you can have a case where, I mean, I have some kind of a disease or a tumor in my brain, and I could be amnesic. So now I've gotten rid of my memory, but you mm. wouldn't say that I'm not a, the same person. No, but then there would still be a great many psychological attributes that would remain unchanged. I mean, there would be your various personality. Those who go with psychological continuity as the relevant criterion um, tend to broaden things out from just memory in order to accommodate that kind of possibility. Those who believe in a soul would claim that you cannot have personal identity over time without some sort of a non-physical component because each of these physical things, all of that can go one way or another, but they're still the essence of this person. Well, they can claim that, but they'll have to come up with an argument for it. Well, the argument is, is uh, just that in order for that person to continue over time, to persist through time, no other characteristic of itself has the power to do that other than some supernatural thing. Why does it have to be supernatural? Why not natural? In fact, Locke thought about souls and uh, he was you know, obviously aware of the idea that the person could be identified with a particular soul. But he didn't like that idea. And the reason he didn't like it is because he ran, in effect, the same thought experiment that we did with Jim and John only he did it with souls, right? What you do is you, rather than getting your two material substances, you get your two immaterial substances. And Locke was particularly interested in the last judgment. He thought that the person that God should be punishing for the bad stuff that was done should be the person that remembers doing it. But so let's suppose that Locke is right. You go where the memories go or where perhaps the, 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 the personality traits end up. The, the problem you then end up is this, that the river of memories and so on could, could end up going off in two different directions, so it ends up with two different people. You have two different people, say, with the same memories. We would then have to say that they were both the earlier individual, but if we say that, then we'll have to say that they are identical with each other, and clearly they're not. The number of people is two, right? So there is this classical problem with the psychological theory, with the, the memory theory. And in fact, you might say, surely this makes it look like you need some kind of concrete thing after all, a, a physical body, an animal. That's the only solution. And, and it's a thorny puzzle, and I don't pretend to know the answer to it. <laughs> my memory is me, yes, but eliminate my memory and I'd still have my first-person sense of inner awareness. My personality traits are me, yes again, but eliminate my personality traits, and though I'd act and feel differently, I'd still be aware that I am me. Do I need a persistent physical body to be me? The theory seems defeated by the brain transplant thought experiments. Memory, personality, body, no. What then makes me? I'll ask a philosopher who asserts that a non-physical component is required to make the human mind. I go to Oxford to visit the distinguished author of The Evolution of the Soul, Richard Swinburne. 
if you want to tell the whole story of the world, you must say what objects there are in the world, what substances there are, and what properties they have at different times. And of course that will include all the physical objects, all the tables and chairs and planets and atoms, and uh, what properties they have, what their mass is, and uh, what relations they have to other atoms. But of course that won't tell the whole story. You will also have to tell the conscious life which is associated with each body. You have to include the sensations and the beliefs and the thoughts. But even that won't do because it's compatible with this, uh, with telling all about the physical objects and their properties and all about the associated mental properties, that you might have my body and I might have yours. Because it might be that uh, you were born uh, with my genes and in inhabited my body and had my thoughts and so on, and I was born with your genes and inhabit your body and your thoughts, and uh, the world would be exactly the same. But of course, the world would be crucially different because you would have those experiences and I would be having these experiences. So, a full story of the world has got to bring in a further element, it has got to pick out subjects of experience, not just by the experiences they have, not just by the physical bodies that are associated with it, but by in some other way. In what way? Well, the obvious way to, to put it is to say that they, they, they are separate mental entities for which the natural word is soul. I am my soul, and that has certain properties in the sense of thoughts and sensations, and it's associated with a body which has certain physical properties and so on. You've got to bring in persons, and you've got to define persons not in terms of the bodies that they're associated with, but in terms of the soul. Therefore, given that souls constitute the personal identity, the continued existence of me will consist in the continued existence of my soul. Now, maybe, of course, that can't function on its own. Uh, maybe it can only function when associated with the body. But in that case, my continued existence would consist in it being joined to a body again, possibly a body made out of a few of these uh, same bones, but not necessarily, maybe an entirely new body. Uh, that's what my existence would consist in. Do you have a problem understanding what this soul is? Is it a differentiated quality? What's to prevent your soul from getting mixed up with my soul? It is not analyzable further. It has no extension. It is an immaterial particular. Uh, it does, of course, have characteristics, properties. It has these thoughts, these feelings, these attitudes to life and so on. But, and in fact, we distinguish between souls in terms of the bodies with which they are associated. But of course, if they get separated from bodies, and if it, they were to have the same thoughts as each other and attitude life as each other, it wouldn't be possible for us to tell the difference between them. Of course, a superior being might see things in them that we can't and therefore recognize the difference. But for us to uh, interact with others and to be able to recognize others, we, we need uh, different public uh, characteristics, yes. Postulating souls to explain persistence of persons is out of favor, but Richard is undeterred. He argues that subjective experience, our inner awareness, is a further fact about the world, unexplained by physical facts. 
Here I find myself of two voices. One shouts, we've reached the limits of philosophy. Progress can be made only by brain science. The other whispers, if perchance there's anything non-physical about the human mind, there'd likely be no scientific method to discern it. But since the non-physical closes off inquiry, I pursue the brain science. Can the brain elucidate how persons can persist? Are there brain parts related to personal identity? Perhaps we can learn from brain deficits. I go to Los Angeles, UCLA, to meet neuropsychologist Robert Bilder. So the concept of personal identity and for a neuropsychologist links us to a disease concept. We have a huge amount of our brain dedicated to the representation of all of the aspects of our body, uh, including not just our skin surfaces, the position of all of our joints in space. All of these things are represented in our brain. And the high-level constructs that reflect the integrated synthesis of all that information does provide us with a key sense of self. And we know that can be destroyed with certain kinds of lesions in the brain. Mm. There are also probably other really critical components in the sense of self that come from us being able to identify our own willed intentions. What is it that we intended to do? What is our plan for action? And I think this is tied to the primitive action systems of the brain um, and is ultimately linked to our motor control uh, and how we act upon our environment. The general feeling that we have is that our personal identity has this unity. What you're saying is that it's really made up of a large number of components that we're not even aware of the experiments in nature that cause neuropathology um, sometimes show us how these things can be disconnected. So we have people who have a lack of a sense of self and a loss of the sense of uh, reality that's tied to other kinds of disturbances in the sense of familiarity. So the sense of deja vu, mm -hmm. the sense that uh, you know we've experienced something before, uh, or the sense of jamais vu, the uh, experience of being in a familiar place and having it be very unfamiliar. Um, that's much more closely tied, I think, to this loss of the sense of identity. There are syndromes of uh, body dysmorphic disorder where people feel that parts of their body are suddenly um, unusual, deformed, or not part of themselves anymore. We can produce relatively specific lesions in the brain that lead us to have a complete loss of our sense of agency and, and volition. We're beginning to understand some of the brain circuitry that's involved in representing these, um, the, the sense of self and the sense of agency, the sense that we are responsible for our own actions. So you can actually do something and feel like you're not responsible for it? Yes, is the classic example of the uh, alien hand sign uh, is one where you know a person performs an action like brushing a fly off their shoulder and doesn't believe that they are responsible for it, and they think somebody else did. You did that to me. Actually, in all of the um, psychotic disorders, um, there can often be a disconnection uh, between one's uh, sense of self and where external stimuli are dominating a brain function. So it looks as though in most auditory hallucinations, there's activity within our temporal lobe, the auditory linguistic system of the brain that is ongoing. You can document it with scans, um, but the individual doesn't have the sense that they generated that activity themselves. So they therefore believe logically that it's coming from an external source. Does that mean that our sense of self is a mirage? Well, 
I don't think it's any more mirage than any other kind of brain activity, but I think that we have to appreciate that all of our sensorium, all of our experiences, all of our senses are products of brain activity and brain function. But I don't think that minimizes the process in any way. I think it's miraculous. Brain deficits, neuropathology, can cause highly specific personality disorders. Do these disorders negate a unified self or merely portray a self with an injury, like a body with a broken bone? How much of one's normal personal identity can be disturbed before one is no longer the same person? If brain deficits unmask a mythical unified self as an intertwined bundle of discrete mental capacities and traits, then personal identity may be an illusion, and the question of how personal identity persists may become meaningless. There is yet another perspective of persons and selves, wisdom and contemplative traditions. Originating in Eastern philosophy, they offer a radical view of personal identity. I go to the University of California at Irvine to visit a neuroscientist immersed in contemplative practices, Roger Walsh. We are and we maintain our identity because of the very nature of the brain and its capacity for setting up circuits that continue to reverberate in habitual ways. But of course, if we look at it from, say, a social perspective, then of course our identity is determined and reinforced over time by economic factors. Then there are cultural factors, the shared beliefs about who I am, a man, a woman, and what this means about who I am and can be, etc. We know that psychological factors and habits within us work to create a firmly established sense of identity. And then finally there's the contemplative or spiritual perspective, which tell us that actually what we usually assume ourselves to be isn't who we really are. And what they tell us is that when we turn attention inward and look very carefully, we find that actually we are the awareness or consciousness or mind or soul or spirit or Tao, lots of different names, which is witnessing that little self-image. So they invite us to a very radically different identity. Now, neuroscientists in general would claim that all of the four levels above would all be reducible to neurons in some complex fashion. And ultimately, all of that has to be expressed in the pattern of a whole bunch of neurons firing in your cranium. Well, of course, but anyone who knows something, for example, about systems theory appreciates that no account of a higher level can fully be given by a lower level. So that, yes, I, it's absolutely crucial for us to know as much as we possibly can about the brain, but no amount of brain science is going to tell you about the effects of cultural enrichment or deprivation or of beliefs about what it is to be a man or woman, for example. 
theologians would say, now we have to add something that's not physical, something immaterial, in order to really make sense out of this whole picture. Do you agree with that? Whereas I firmly believed very much along with the reductionistic camp that the brain and atoms explain it all as a result of my own uh, both personal exploration and contemplative practices and of a long-term study of contemplative and spiritual literature, I've begun to think that there's a lot more to our reality and that no adequate understanding of human nature can be obtained without uh, an appreciation of the contemplative or spiritual and that a full picture will have to take all these domains into account. The question, how personal identity persists through time, combines two separate questions. What is persistence through time? What are persons? To explain persistence, nothing material works. Some kind of pattern is needed, information perhaps. To explain persons, I see four levels. Brain systems psychological, private, sociological, interactive, culture. What about inner awareness, beliefs, intentions, feelings? To totally explain persons is a non-physical category also needed, and therefore to maintain personal identity through time is something immaterial required. Most assuredly not. Don't be a fool. Personal unity is all an illusion. Most assuredly so. Look inside. Be mindful. Nothing could be clearer. For the meaning of life, this conflict, this clash, takes us closer to truth. To watch complete conversations with over 100 of the world's leading thinkers on cosmos, consciousness, and meaning, visit our website, closertotruth.com.